0: Hey, Pete, how you doing this evening? Hi, Ray. How are you? I'm doing well. Good deal, uh, man. Yeah, you know, uh, we're usually very chipper prior to these uh, recordings. But after doing a background on on this case, um, it's sort of hard to be chipper. And
1: I know. I, I know what's coming. And I just hope. I could get through it, my friend.
0: Yeah, I know. Tough uh, tough duty. I know we usually play our sort of intro video. Uh, I don't think that's uh, proper here, um, so I'm going to forego that. want to give a little bit of uh, an intro on our guest, uh, Major Doug Burig, retired, now uh, executive director of McLaughlin. Uh, the Middle Atlantic Great Lakes organized crime law enforcement network. Only, only law enforcement has those huge acronyms, right? But uh, McLaughlin, and we'll probably hear a little bit about it from a Doug, is uh, one of those uh RIS, uh, RIS excuse me, risk uh, network sites that does a hell of a lot of good for law enforcement in terms of uh, resourcing and. Uh, Analytical uh, talent to support the good fight against crime, so you know Doug moving from the state police over to there is just a it's a phenomenal uh, benefit to not just McLaughlin but certainly to uh, law enforcement in the in the northeast uh, doug as you 're going to find out is uh, just just one of those true pros in law enforcement i've known him for uh, quite a long time uh, being right in Pennsylvania me and New Jersey we'd see each other uh, not only uh you know, in terms of training and seminars but even on you know work related uh areas or or missions so i consider him a good friend but at the same time uh, just a, a tremendous a pro um 25 years Pennsylvania state police seen a lot of things and we're going to hear about one of those things today that he experienced and you know, just being involved with it, uh, I, I, it's it's one of those things that you'll you'll not only never forget, but you'll always remember, and you'll always honor the folks that were certainly involved with that, the victims, the families, and uh, all the first responders that were involved in uh, bringing that incident to its conclusion. So, what are we talking about? <clears throat> October 2nd, 2006, the Amish um, school shooting. And look, this is from you, Pete. Inconceivable horror, incredible forgiveness. What a, what a title to this incident. Uh, West Nichols Mines School. That was in, yeah, it's tough even thinking about this, to envision this. One room schoolhouse nickel mines Lancaster County a gunman enters that schoolhouse and the carnage that he delivers on the the innocent is something you 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 can't even fathom uh the evil that went into that is just incredible we're gonna hear from Doug Bureg at the time, he was a sergeant. I think I said he retired from the Pennsylvania State Police as a major, but he was one of the first to arrive on the scene, and he took command, incident commander. And we're going to hear a little bit about just even the area where it's uh, very rural, and the Pennsylvania State Police have uh, jurisdiction there, and they work a lot with the uh, with the Amish. And wow, I'm. St- <laughs> You know, you put in uh, the introduction, this whipsaw effect between just
1: faith, hope and despair, my friend. Yeah. Wow. It, and and everybody should be forewarned. Just stick with us. It may seem like you're being whipsawed, but uh, stick with us to the end.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so what I I. Thought we would do because, you know, in speaking to Doug, uh, this presentation or excuse me, this description of events he's done, you know, several times in front of a law enforcement group. Uh, You know, it could take several hours and um, we're not certainly not going to constrain him in any way. But I think uh, this I have a quick intro I found on on the Internet that I think is a really good setup for us to have a conversation with Doug in terms of uh, what was experienced. But again, you've said this so many times that, you know, justice, you know, for the families here, right? Uh, I just can't even imagine how. Hey, Doug.
2: Hey, Ray, Pete. um, Good to see you guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, Doug,
0: how you doing? Doug, we're usually uh, pretty chipper when we uh, invite our guests on, but it's kind of tough after seeing a video like that to, uh, even for me to sort of needle my good friend Pete on anything. So, look, welcome. Thank you for coming, and thanks for agreeing to share the story and your experiences. Uh, it's its a story that I know has been told. Uh, I know there's a few books written on it. I know when it first happened, there was some media attention, but I think it's a story that needs to be continually uh, shared. Folks understand uh, the devastation that can come from an active shooter as it relates to schools. So welcome aboard.
2: Thank you, Ray. I'm, I appreciate it. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And I think you've met Pete.
2: I have. Yeah.
0: So, uh, look, where do we begin? Um, we're talking October of 2006, right? Um, Yes. What were you doing or I should say, where were you assigned in October of 2006 that, uh, as part of your work, you got involved in this, uh, tragedy?
2: So at the time, uh, I'd been with the state police about 11 years, and I was assigned as the criminal investigation section supervisor at Troop J Lancaster. So I was in charge of all the investigators, all the investigative programs out of the Lancaster barracks.
0: Wow. Now, you, uh, I'm trying to pull up a map here um, of what we're talking about in terms of sort of uh location so obviously pennsylvania is a quite a large state for the northeast and uh i I put a little red dot there of uh sort of the area that we're talking about and then if i so that's in what what would you consider that southeast pennsylvania is your work in that area
2: yeah southeastern pennsylvania we're approximately 65 miles from philadelphia maybe 55 from baltimore (sighs) And uh, Lancaster County, um, kind of a mix, you know, densely populated suburbia and some very rural areas and um, about five hundred and sixty thousand people. But most notably, there's a largest settlement of Old Order Amish in the United States uh, in excess of 40,000 um, Old Order Amish folks call our area home. And many of them are in eastern Lancaster County where this incident occurred.
0: Wow. And when you say old order, is there several different like derivations of Amish or
2: there are um, okay. I would not consider myself an expert on it. But the right. Old order Amish would be probably the the most traditional um, use the least amount of technology. There are some other Amish sects as well as many Mennonite sects in right. Leicester County and throughout the country. Wow.
1: Now, they they try to keep themselves isolated from a connection to the outside world. There's no electricity connected to their
2: homes or telephones or things like that. Is that correct? Correct. So inside their homes, they try to keep technology out. Um, Traditionally, you know, in the 1800s, first part of the 20th century, the predominantly farmers, but they're in all of the skilled trades now. So they will utilize technology in conjunction with their jobs. They'll use cell phones on a job site, but they won't bring that technology in their home. Um, They still won't drive vehicles. They have drivers take them places. Um, But they're they're very congenial people. I've had dealings with them my entire career working in Lancaster County. And uh, they're great people, but um, um, very strict um, Christian values and some traditions that you just don't see in every other uh, religion. And of course, the clothing, um, the buggies, the teams, as they call them, is mm-hmm. is probably what makes them most unique, and what most visitors to Lancaster County would connotate with uh, with the Old Order Amish.
0: And and I take it that the state police is um, maybe not the only, but it probably has the the largest jurisdiction in this area,
2: correct? <laughs> Um, by landmass, yes. So Pennsylvania is a little bit different. The Pennsylvania State Police has a lot of primary jurisdiction. So they police the areas that don't have a municipal police department. <laughs> so we, uh, at the time, probably policed at least 60%, 75% of the landmass of Lancaster County. And uh, so all of the Amish areas, not all, but most. And um, I think 16 or 17 townships throughout the county. Wow. Wow. <laughs>
0: Um <clears throat> so let's talk about that fateful day. Uh as tough as it is and you know I I don't care how hardened you are as uh as a cop, uh this stuff has gotta sit with you in uh in your heart. So can we talk about that day?
2: Sure. <laughs> And uh, you're right, Ray, there's there's nothing that could have prepared us for that day. I don't think any of us, we were all pretty experienced investigators. I had investigated a lot of homicides, been involved in some um, <laughs> you know, some, some bad situations, but there was nothing that could have prepared me for this day. So I was a a sergeant, which is more of an inside management position, in the state police. And uh, it was a beautiful Monday morning, you know, not, not a cloud in the sky, kind of unseasonably warm for October. And a young investigator walked in my office, he said, there's a man with a gun in an Amish school. And I jumped up. I yelled to our guys to grab some specialized equipment, ran down and jumped into an unmarked car. So, you know, we were we were moving within like 45 seconds. Obviously, this is all hands. This is everybody going to something like this.
0: And and how far is this uh, from uh, the barracks?
2: Probably about nine miles. Wow. Wow. You have to go through all the areas um, where a lot of tourists, we get about 11 million tourists a year. So some pretty congested tourist areas to get down to the scene. Um, and, you know, as we're driving, I'm kind of listening, like, who's in charge of this? And it became apparent pretty quickly that I was the highest ranking person out. And they start <laughs> deferring to me for decisions. And, you know, in state police, the incident command system, the highest ranking person takes charge. And so, um, you know, we're driving to the scene at a really high rate of speed. And I'm starting to, you know, think about what resources we might need. I really had very little information, just a man with a gun. Um, Many times in our law enforcement careers, you're sent to incidents and it sounds like it's Armageddon, but it turns out to be nothing. So that's going through my mind. There had just been a school shooting incident in Bailey, Colorado the week before. So the nation was hyped up and, you know, I'm listening and, uh, but it became very real when the first patrol troopers got there and said, there was a truck backed up to the school that all the doors and windows were locked. And it was like a warm sensation that went down my spine that I immediately knew that it was true. The initial reports were true. There was something terrible going on there.
0: Wow. And this is, this is the, what we're seeing here. This is the schoolhouse. It is a one room schoolhouse,
2: one room schoolhouse, you know, probably 40 feet by 30 feet uh, in the school that day, 26 students um, 15 males, 11 females, a teacher, a 20-year-old teacher, and two adult guests uh, were in the building that day. But that's exactly how it looked when I got there that day. Wow.
0: So he, uh, he just backs up his truck and goes. he walks right in. He's armed. And, he's, and what's he armed with at that time when he's coming right into the school?
2: Um, he came in initially with a handgun, and he ordered all the children up uh, against the chalkboard. He herded them that way, but he subsequently brought in a shotgun, a rifle, over 600 rounds of ammunition. Wow. And
0: the, so, and the, the age of the kids here?
2: Um, the Amish only go to school till age 13. So the youngest girl in the school was six and the oldest was 13. The students were predominantly in the seven, eight, nine range. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when I got there, there were already several patrol troopers, uniform members there. And when I got out, I just realized what a poor tactical situation was. There was no cover anywhere. There were no buildings close by. And I wound up dropping my bags right in the middle of the road. <laughs> um and started to run the incident you know using a cell phone and a radio to communicate obviously we'd asked for a lot of specialized resources a cert team or a SWAT team as most people would call it aviation assets um assistance from local police departments assistance from every state police barracks within you know driving distance um so i knew there were hundreds a police officer on the way to assist us. But when I got out of the car that day, there was a total of 10 of us, myself and four non-uniformed people from my unit, criminal investigators and five uniformed patrol troopers. So it was myself and eight troopers and a corporal.
1: How long does it take you to figure out who's, who, who's in there?
2: So I was very fortunate. I mean, we couldn't see anything. I asked the uniform troopers and they said, look, all the, the windows are closed, they couldn't see a thing, and the doors were locked. We didn't know you know, who exactly was in there, what they were armed with, how many gunmen there were, where the children were. We, we knew nothing. But I did, I was fortunate to have a professional negotiator. One of my criminal investigators, a long-time CERT negotiator, SWAT negotiator, so he immediately went over the PA system and tried to start talking to the individual.
1: Wow
0: and uh uh, this just real quick this area here that we're looking at i mean it is there's really nothing around except farmland um that's it right
2: Um, there is it's extremely rural there's um there's an auction house about a quarter mile away but pretty pretty remote area um so I knew it was going to be a little while for some of the specialized resources to get there but you know we were fortunate to have a professional negotiator trying to make contact and you know as we've seen in most of these incidents around the country police are alerted to these when shots are being fired in a school or in a building and there's really you know no decisions to be made um you're going to try to stop their action, locate them as quickly as possible. But this was some sort of hostage, unknown hostage situation, um, because he had been inside the building prior to the police arrival for probably 20 to 25 minutes, barricading it. Uh,
0: And, and, and this is also 2006. So while uh, unfortunately the phenomena of school shootings had been around, not to the degree that we saw, Oh, you know, much later than that, where where you know, police are getting much more training in terms of got to stop the bloodshed, right? So um, this is this is like the early stages. That it, I'm thinking to myself that you had said earlier that um, sort of any type of uh, you know uh, technology is is not something that the Amish use. So when you when you're pulling in there and you see this truck. That also has to be some sort of, like, odd thing that's going on here t- as well, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we knew something was, was very wrong. We just didn't really know what was occurring, but... Um,
0: you have no idea how many people are in here? No.
2: No idea. No idea or how many gunmen or what the intention was. We didn't know the school was being barricaded from the inside. Um, we just We had very little information, but nobody was being hurt at the time. And, you know, we had uh, specialized resources um, coming and, you know, it was after Columbine in 1999, law enforcement across the country received extensive training on active shooters. And, you know, this this at that time was not an active shooter Oh, situation. It was yeah, more a of a, a hostage situation. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just never envisioned it would be a, a one room schoolhouse. I mean, when I went through the training, I envisioned myself going through, you know, long hallways in a middle school or a high school. Right. Um, um, a lot of noise, fire alarms going off. And um, it was, you know, shocking that this could occur in a one room schoolhouse.
0: And I'm sure there's almost the sense of peace at first when you're there. Right. Because it's got to be super quiet. It's in the rural area. Right. It's a beautiful day. Um, You know, you're rolling up on something besides just getting the phone call. This is what you're seeing. It's a beautiful day. Right.
2: Well, I mean, we knew something was wrong. And uh, so as I was positioning the people around the school, you know, it's the best like tactical advantage that we could get under the circumstances. Uh, apparently the, the gunman called nine one one and demanded that there's the police have to get off the property. So he was making some type of demands and this was sent over the air to us. So we were advised this. We knew something was going on inside. We really didn't know what, but he stated that he had 10 female hostages and he had um to to back up a little bit after after tying the girls feet together um so they couldn't run away he sent all the boys and the visitors out of the school so only in the school at that time were 10 young girls between 6 and 13 um when i got there of course we didn't we didn't know this at the time and uh so, you know, from the outside, um everything was calm. You know, the negotiator was attempting to make contact with this individual, um and you know, he's saying things loudly over the PA system. Uh we did not know what was going on inside the school. And I had been at the scene for about 7 or 8 minutes when I just heard the first gunshots and The first gunshot was surprising because nothing had really changed. I just heard the loud boom of shotgun, boom, boom, boom. And then a different weapon, which turned out to be the handgun, just pop, 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 pop. He was firing so fast and I heard several different weapons. I thought he had came out the side of the window and was probably shooting it out with some of our people on the right side of the school. But I didn't realize immediately that he was shooting the girls. But the nine troopers that were with me, could see from a different angle. The gunfire was come from the school and they immediately assaulted the school to try to get in there and save lives.
0: And also at this time, you don't know there's only one gunman,
2: right? We have no idea. No idea. <laughs> we just heard gunfire. It became an active incident and our troopers immediately began assaulting the various windows and doors, trying to fight their way in. And, you know, what they didn't know was it was heavily barricaded from the inside And they had to fight through some pretty significant barricades. He did fire at our people uh, as they're going towards the front of the school. But, you know, um, I give those nine troopers that were there with me that day all the credit in the world. Um, They were incredibly brave and they were willing to give their lives to try to get in there and save the girls. Give us an idea what the barricades were, Doug, if you could. Um, he had hammered um two by fours into the frames of all the doors. He had flex tied the door handles. He had inserted um lumber down into the breaker bar systems to prevent them from opening, and it piled desks and chairs in front of there there was only two doors for the school, um the front and one side door, and they were very heavily barricaded. So troopers were using their bare hands, rifle butts. Um everything they could to try to fight their way through these significant barricades.
1: You would think that something like this is just in the mind of uh, 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 novelists and movie producers and things like that, that no one could be that diabolical (laughs) to to plan something like that.
2: We just yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's unexplainable, it's indescribable and you know, at the time we didn't notice we heard gunfire and the troopers immediately started assaulting the school. And again, it took about over two minutes for them to fight through these barricades.
1: And, and you find excuse okay. me, you, you find some some heroism and some bravery amongst the hostages, isn't that correct?
2: Apparently uh, one of the girls said to him, if you're gonna shoot anybody, shoot me first. And he immediately shot all ten of the girls. Um and that's what, you know, Ooh. again from the outside, all we heard was gunfire and the troopers immediately did what they were trained to do and were incredibly those nine people, I'm not talking about myself, were incredibly brave and did everything they could to get inside while being shot at. And it took a couple minutes. And finally, one of the troopers got one door open. Another trooper whipped, ripped the window frame out with his bare hands. Wow. And uh, the gunman took his own life as they were entering. And then, you know, as we made our way inside, um, you know, it was pretty clear that, you know, the gun was deceased. And uh, when I got towards the front of the classroom, it's the first time I saw the girls. And um, um, it was horrendous. Yeah. Um, It was evident that some of the girls were still alive, and it was so dark in the school. There's no lights inside of an Amish school. Um, It's not ideal, especially with children with gunshot wounds to the head, uh, to have to move them, but we didn't have any choice. So we carried them outside, and that's where each of the troopers, we carried nine of the girls outside. Um, One was already deceased. Wow! And each trooper picked one of the victims and just started trying to help them using, you know, first aid and and uh, trying to stop the bleeding. And they showed a lot of compassion. I heard the guys talking, you know, to the girls and you know, stay with me, keep talking to me. Um, They showed a tremendous amount of compassion. Jeez! Yeah. uh, It was it was surreal. I don't know how to describe it. It was the most horrendous thing I had ever seen, but we had work to do. There were people that were still alive. I called for five medevac helicopters. I knew with the head injuries and, um, that we would need to get people to hospital as quickly as possible. So I grabbed the radio and asked for five medevac helicopters and, you know, advanced life support and, uh, they subsequently sent me, I believe it was 11 medic units, 14 ambulances, five medevac helicopters. And, but the troopers just continued to treat the girls, you know, to their, to their level of training. One of our female troopers was a registered nurse. So she had a higher level of training. She actually intubated one of the girls when the first EMS folks got on the scene. And, um, yeah, at one point, you know, it's like time was standing still, but, um, the the hardest thing was just watching the guys hold the girls um, yeah. while waiting for, for more help and just how helpless um, they they must have felt. And then at one point, you know, when the medical helicopter started landing. I mean, it was blowing bandages all over the place. And um, it I'm not a military veteran. It reminded me of something you would see in a military movie, like evacuating casualties from battle. I mean, that's what it looked like. The right. helicopters dropping in and blowing everything around. And and it probably took 25 minutes to evacuate all the girls. And they went to, um, I believe, five hospitals in two different states.
1: And now by this time, I would think that the residents and most likely family members, the word is spreading amongst the community about what's going out there.
2: Some of the Amish families, unfortunately, witnessed this from a distance. They live right in this community. The kids walk to the school. And at one point when I looked up, I saw Amish families standing in the field. And as more troopers, you know, there were only 10 of us there when this started. But other people were coming to the scene in the minutes that followed to help. And then I told them, like, please keep them back. You know, I this is probably some of their family please keep them back and Trooper started you know, pushing everybody back and trying to secure the scene and Ugh. to clear the cars so the medical help could get in but um, and every time I looked up the scene just got bigger and bigger as more people arrived to, to help us yeah.
1: what, what what drives what drove this man to this what drives somebody to doing
2: this You know, it's uh, what what reason could you ever really give for something like this? But um, some of the stuff that we've made public and shared with the media initially, you know, I would share now. He did leave some notes um, behind for his family, and he spoke extensively about the death of his daughter, who died um, 20 minutes after birth. So his firstborn child died prematurely, died 20 minutes after being born, (laughs) And he wrote about having issues with God and blaming God for this. But so th-
0: he had two other children, right?
2: He went on to have three, three other children oh. after the death of his firstborn. But, the,
1: you know, even the, the logic doesn't even compute. I mean, he's going to blame God and then take these children away from their parents, knowing how he felt. and.
2: <sighs> It's just yeah. it's who it's can really explain this? yeah I don't know i'm you know, I'm sure the answers um passed with him that day, and you know i I'm not sure if we'll we'll ever know, but yeah it was it was just it was horrific i I thought I had pretty much seen it all, I was experienced criminal investigator, i had been to a lot of um very bad scenes, but there's nothing that can prepare you for watching people die and um, having a crime like this inflicted on children. There's, there's just there's simply nothing that can prepare you for that. But then one would expect that there would be a
1: cry for vengeance, a cry for justice, whatever you want to call it, anger, um, hatred, for this man and his family. It this bizarre story gets even more bizarre in terms of the natural reaction you would expect from people. And we get just the opposite
2: with people of faith, of great strong faith. That's very true. The Amish are devout Christians and they live their faith every day and within hours of the shooting occurring, they went to his home and spoke to his wife and told them that they forgive him for what was done and that they only want to help their family. Um, So this was within hours uh, that they did this. And it just shows how magnanimous the Amish people are and how devout they are in their faith and it was, it was truly amazing. Um, it was inspirational that in the, in, in the time that they were suffering so bad that they thought enough to go over and give comfort to his family is is something that I'll never forget. And I know that they will never forget. (laughs) Jeez.
0: Yeah, you
1: know, I'm a Christian. I'm a Catholic. I don't know if I could do that.
2: Yeah, they actually, they attended, um, they attended his funeral. The person who did this, they attended his funeral. Um, they gave comfort and support to his surviving family, you know, for the years to come and to this day. So. I think we all could probably learn a lesson from Absolutely. from how the Amish, just the the dignity and grace of which they handled themselves after uh, an incident that might have left other people bitter and hateful, and as you said, Pete, vengeful. Um, but that's not how they are, and I think it's a great credit um, to them. And I I will forever be inspired by the bravery of the girls that day and their families and how they handled this. That is the bravest that I've ever seen. Um, Yeah. Just, just exceptional people. And, you know, our bond that we developed afterwards, I think is one of the things that helped me heal the most. Wow. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you guys were in law enforcement. I mean, a lot of times you investigate homicides or sexual assaults. You have interactions with the victims and you move on to other cases and they move on with their life. But it was different with this. This was so life changing for all of us that I think we needed to lean on each other to get through it. So we met with the, there were troopers that were assigned to help the families initially, but I didn't really meet all of the families until I believe it was three weeks later. They brought us to the firehouse where all the families were waiting for us. All the first responders were there and we went in and met and spoke with the families. And it was emotionally, it was the most emotionally difficult thing I've ever done. Yeah. Um to walk in there, I felt guilty by what had occurred. I was questioning the decisions that I had made that day. And I I had a really heavy burden. And I knew they were going to ask me some tough questions, which they did. Um, but they had they had the right to know what happened, and they wanted to hear it from us. So we told them. Um but I didn't realize that that was kind of the beginning of our bond and the healing process. And they were so gracious to us. I mean, I, from the outside looking in, you would think I'm just a reminder of a, of the worst day of their lives. But instead of pushing away, they actually brought us closer and we were invited to church services. Um, that typically, they refer to us as English or non amish are are not permitted to come to um and we build a bond that still exists to this day, and wow. we've spent a lot of time um we've attended weddings of some of the surviving girls, um the teacher from the school and and we've we've had a lot of interaction in the community, and there's been nothing that's helped me heal more than our our bond with the Amish families uh, that went through this what, that continues to this day, and and what a case study for victim advocates advocates.
1: I mean, has anybody ever looked at this? I mean, this is this, this is why we wanted to tell this story because it starts out with such evil, and it turns out to be something magnanimous, something that is is is, is we look at. I look at it in awe of, of, of these of, of these folks. Has anyone looked at this thing and, and, and from that kind of a perspective of you know talking about grace uh, and 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 forgiveness and how to deal with dignity? Um, I'm sure had he had not committed suicide, I mean justice would still need to be amended, but sure. uh, but. Having said all that, um, even when vi- some victims do get justice in court, it's never enough. Never enough, right? right? Never enough for some folks, and this this is something that we could all take a lesson from.
2: Yeah, to forgive like they did initially, and I and I can't speak for them, but I'm sure that was not easy um, no. for, for what <laughs> for what they had to deal with, especially for the families. You know, unfortunately, five girls were were killed that day, but five survived and had horrendous injuries that many of them are, you know, still being treated for to this day. And families were left to to deal with the aftermath, both psychologically and physically. But, you know, incredibly inspirational. They shared their experiences with others that were victims of mass shootings. So a year later at the Virginia Tech tragedy, the Amish families went down and met With the parents who lost children that incident to try to help them because who Ah. could relate to losing a child other than somebody that's been through a similar experience so they open themselves up emotionally actually virgin tech families came up i met with some of them as well um we had to get together but you know that wasn't the last time the amish also traveled to um uh the town where the sandy hook Yeah, shooting took place to help those families. So they took this horrendous tragedy and have only given of themselves to help other families deal with it. So I don't. What greater gift can you give to somebody than what they've done for other families? It was it was truly it was the worst day of my life. But what I've seen since, particularly from the Amish families and and those I work with is also um, perhaps me the most inspiring event that I've ever been a part of because of how they they reacted. And, you know, certainly the state police, we we tried to share the lessons learned with others to help them prepare for similar incidents that inevitably will come to their communities. And we have we've spoke to a lot of school administrators, law enforcement officials, um, emergency management folks fire EMS across the country, trying to share lessons learned, things that we did well or things that we wish we could have done better. And, you know, unfortunately, these events are much more common now than when this happened in 2006. Uh, The the rate of increase is exponential.
0: Hey, Doug, um, do we know how long the subject was planning this?
2: We did uh, an extensive investigation and we saw evidence of him purchasing materials for this incident about eight days before. Now my experience tells me he was probably planning this much longer, but as far as taking concrete steps and definitive actions towards it, we have evidence of that of eight days, eight days before.
0: And none of his family had that even picked up on any of these cues that he was going through.
2: They did not No, We wow. don't believe they had any idea whatsoever this was going to occur. I believe only he knew. None of us woke up that day and knew this was going to happen.
0: And even looking at some of what's been written about his his wife, she had no clue, right? No clue
2: whatsoever. Absolutely none. And, you know, I also give her a lot of credit. Um, Marie has uh, the unthinkable tragedy that she had to deal with. She has gone out and spoke to others and tried to inspire them and help them through tragedies as well. So I, I respect wow. what she's done to try to help other people. Um, she's, she's traveled the country speaking to people trying to help them through similar circumstances and, and share you mm-hmm. know her faith in God. So I have tremendous respect, you know, for her and her family.
0: The, uh, the schoolhouse, is it still standing?
2: So the Amish, uh, the Amish elders, uh, they have church districts and there's a uh, there's a bishop that's in charge of the district. So they make every decision in a group and they ask us what we thought we should do with the school. And we said, look, that's not a decision we can make for you. And uh, but they said, we'd like your opinion. And we told them they should probably tear it down, that people it's going to become a unfortunately a tourist attraction and it's going to be a bad reminder of that mm. day. So the Amish got together and they made a decision. They were going to tear the school down. So I believe it was 12 days after they dismantled the school and they returned it to a pastor like it was before. And the new school was built just down the street. It was actually built behind one of the homes uh, of the Ebersols who lost their daughter, Naomi, that day. Um, they put it um behind their house so they could watch over it and it's called the new hope school and that's still to this day where the where the kids go to school from nickel mines
0: so i know that video that we played uh at the intro it ends with five trees i guess that's to signify the victims correct
2: (sighs) that's true They, they planted trees in in honor of um the five girls who did not survive that day and uh, I thought it was a, a very fitting tribute, mm-hmm. you know, growth and eternal uh, memory. And, um, you know, I do. I Wow.
1: Yeah. I, That's incredible. I think about them every day. If you want to live forever, you write a book or you, you plant a tree. There's an old Chinese proverb. Um, yeah.
2: You know what else is inspiring is... Uh, People donated money from all over the world. Over $4.3 million was donated to the Amish community. And you know because the Amish don't have traditional health insurance, um, first of all, most of the hospitals did not charge anything for the care given to the girls. And this money that was so generously given to people, given by people in 2006, is still going to the care of the girls today who need lifelong care because of their injuries. So that generosity from around the world uh, I saw checks coming in from the UK, from Australia, from all over the United States, Canada, and that money for the people that did donate is still helping those family with their medical expenses and all the specialized medical care they need to this day. Hmm. So yeah. people outside of our community were incredibly generous as well. And, uh, uh, again, just truly inspirational and people were just so magnanimous. It's, uh I've, I've never seen anything quite like it. I've never personally been a part of anything like that. Mm. So like, you've been
1: very, you, you've been uh, very humble throughout this, but my understanding is uh, you and all oh, your colleagues that they received the Medal of Honor from
2: state police. Um, yeah, honestly, it's not something I've ever talked about. Um, my, our department, I will say this, the Pennsylvania state police could not have been better to me and then nine people that were there with me that day and also everybody in my agency who had experienced that The after incident care that they gave us from the the psychological debriefings and diffusings to the long-term care that some of our folks needed and the support I'll never forget. And I honestly Mm. credit that with the reason that nobody, nobody took a sick day. Nobody missed a day of work. Nobody retired. Nobody retired with a disability as a result of that incident. So it's a credit to the character of those people who are with me, and also the way we were treated by the Pennsylvania State Police. You know, I'm eternally grateful for what sure. they did for us after. And nothing to do with any award. It was more the care, the support, the encouragement. Um,
0: just and, incredible. Then,
2: and then going out and sharing the lessons learned with law enforcement and emergency management across the country to try to help others that may deal with an incident. And, you know, we spoke to the Amish before we did that cause I was very reluctant to speak about it. And the, the Amish families told me that if these efforts will save one child or one police officer, then you should go out and talk about it. Mm. And that's the reason I'm speaking to you today.
1: Wow. What? Whew. what an example that, that that community is
2: for, for everyone. They're, they're such good people. Um, I'm, I'm a better person for knowing them and for our experiences since, um, you know, we celebrated a lot of anniversaries together and had dinner together. And, and again, um, I was, the biggest honor of my life was being invited to the weddings of two of the surviving girls and the teacher Mm -hmm. from the school. Um, it was so humbling. Wow. Wow. And they were, they were so good to us. And, and, um, those families helped us, you know, more than, more than anything else. And I credit, you know, us being able to go on and continue to serve and to help other people because of the strength they gave us after this incident. And still do to this day. We still speak to, to everyone in nickel mines to this day.
0: What was that uh, funeral like? That, uh, gosh.
2: So one, one thing, again, uh, the, just the so the Amish asked us to lead the procession, and they're very traditional, and um, they asked us to lead it with our horses, so the state police mounted unit led the procession for all the funeral services. Yeah.
1: I noticed that. I, I was gonna. I was gonna remark about that. I thought it was a great, a great touch by the
2: state police. It's it's the least that we could do to honor their wishes to use a traditional mode of transportation. So oh, we're yeah. glad that we could do that. And um, yeah, extremely difficult. Um, just a, a very emotional ex- experience to attend those services. Wow. wow.
0: Um, and. You said there was a number of survivors. What's going on now with them?
2: So um, the girls have all recovered to varying degrees. Uh, One of the girls, her injuries are so severe that she's permanently disabled and requires basically full-time care. Um, She was six at the time she was shot. The other four girls, um, two of them are married now and have families of their own. Um, the other two of the younger girls, I, I still keep in touch with, they're doing well, they're working. Um, I believe one of them became a teacher, uh, as a result of this incident. And, but they're, they're all doing well. They're going on with their lives. They, some of them have, one of them has had 16 surgeries. Um, but they have kept their faith. They're still in the Amish community and, uh, they continue to be with their families and support us. And, yeah, really just, just great people. Uh, again, they're not not bitter, not dwelling on the past. It's it's more about looking for and they have a really deep faith in God.
0: You've been all over the country. How many times have you sort of talked about this? And I, and I say that because it, it just, it's, it's moving what you're saying here because there's just this human side to this tragedy that I don't think most people get when they see it turn on the news right because it's easy to sure. turn it off and
2: no I, I think some people think perhaps you know we're emotionless and that that the incidents that we investigate in the interactions with people it doesn't affect us of course it affects us and uh you're not human if it doesn't but you know we through this incident and through others we just try to stay steadfast in our belief in what we're doing and trying to protect the protect our communities and, um, regardless of, of what happens to us. I mean, that's what gets me up every day still to this day. And yeah, you never, you never know what's going to happen the next five minutes when you're in police work and some, sometimes you can walk into the most, you know, the, the, the absolute worst day of your life, but then sometimes you interact with people or people in your community and it changes your life and it changes your life for the better. And, wow. and it steals your resolve to stay committed to protecting people because others need your help. And that's what I kept telling myself in the days that followed. You know, when I had a lot of questions when and doubts. And uh, it's like, look, other people need my help. And yeah. it's early. I like I need to go on. And the Amish families and my department the Pennsylvania State Police were incredibly supportive. And um, I was inspired to, you know, to continue to serve others. <laughs> as, as those who were there with me that day, but I've, I've just learned so much from the community. And uh, again, it's like nothing I had, I had ever experienced before.
1: So this, this it's, it's, it's obvious that the, now that this guy had no ex, escape plan, that, that this guy was going to end it there. and, and Suicide no, by cop. No, nobody was going to change his mind because he couldn't get out if he wanted to. It,
2: no, that's correct, and the the notes that he left bef- behind indicated you know the same, but of course we didn't see those until after right. afterwards. And uh, no, this was this this was the way. I, I don't know exactly what his plan was, but he had not intended to come home after this. And I, I
1: thought I, I had read somewhere that um, when he was I, obviously he came with a, a, a lot of supplies and had to go to his truck and back into the school in and out several times. And I guess I read something that he, before he let the, the the male students leave, he actually had them help him unload the truck.
2: Yeah, I believe he did. I mean, he had, um he had everybody at gunpoint. So I believe they did exactly as exactly. they were told. And that was the right, that was the right thing to do. Oh, it could absolutely. have been much more horrific Oh. If the shooting had started with 26 people in the building. Um, but yeah, there's, they they're suffering as well. It, the suffering was not relegated to just the people that were in the school in the shooting. It was everybody who left. They were often brothers and sisters.
0: Survivor's um, remorse.
2: Precisely. Yeah. There were significant impacts on everybody that was in the school and in the community. So um, a lot of the boys um, are, had a very difficult time dealing with this and again, some of their some of the girls that were killed and injured were their were their sisters and their cousins. You know, I, I I'd be
1: interested to hear if you know what the type of calls, if any, were subsequent to this incident for additional security in the schools. I
2: think I know what the answer is, but I'm going to ask you: Are you talking specifically within the uh, the Amish schools? Yeah. So we did meet with uh, the various bishops. Uh, in fact, I went to Indiana and spoke to all of the Amish school leaders in that state, or at least several hundred of them. And, you know, tried to, to make some recommendations for just some common sense security protocols that make it um, less likely for this to happen or to mitigate, you know, what would occur uh, in the future. And, you know, honestly, some communities took some measures. Other communities did not. Um, that was just their choice. And and I've seen that throughout the countries. we've spoke to different audiences. You know, some communities have been very proactive, others not as much. Um, there's certainly a lot of considerations and I would never judge anybody by what they did or did not do. I simply, we would offer our advice based on our experience or on research or other incidents that had occurred and um, just try to impart that to make the community safer. And yeah, in some places uh, they were widely adopted and others not so much.
1: And, and they were guided by uh, th- their faith and guided by their their beliefs and their desires for a certain for privacy and things like that, I'm sure. So um, very true. We, it's it's uh, it's a very, very interesting story and response. And it, it it just makes me in awe of someone that has such strong faith that they could, uh, I, I could just imagine them saying to you, well, thank you for the offer, but we're going to leave this in God's hands uh, in terms of what happens or doesn't
2: happen in their schools from that point, Don. Yeah, Pete, you're exactly right. Uh, there were there were several people that said, "Look, this was God's will, and we're not going to change our lives or how we do business or how we protect our community based on this incident." But um, certainly, in other communities, there were changes that were that were made um, that will make. These incidents less likely to happen, or at least the consequences not as dire. Um, but that's why we went out and spoke about this incident in the first place to school officials and law enforcement was just to, you know, obviously we took a hard look uh, internally of what we did well and what we didn't do so well. And I feel that was our obligation in law enforcement to share that with others because mm-hmm. they asked. We weren't you know, asking to come out and talk to people, people contact us. So we'd like you to share your experience, you know, the good or the bad. And I think in law enforcement, that's your obligation to share that information, try to protect other law enforcement officers and the, and their community members. It would be and, selfish. And to and
0: not Doug, do that. Big, uh, big shout out to your executive command and your Colonel for, you know, really allowing you guys to do that. Um, you know, Something like this, a tragedy, you know, some, some executives would say, let's just, you know, keep it under wraps here for, you know, a whole host of reasons, good and bad, but uh, kudos to your executive command and your, and your colonel for pushing it.
2: Yeah, Colonel Miller at the time, Captain Law for all of our command staff, Major Kurtz, they they could not have been better. I saw just tremendous leadership from them, which I tried to, I remembered and tried to emulate throughout the rest of my career. And uh, I was just surrounded by exceptional people. They never pushed us to do anything. They simply left it up to us, you know, whether we wanted to speak to media or whether we were willing to speak to other police officers, they were nothing but supportive. <laughs> and uh, I, I just give... I. I yeah, I've spent most of my adult life as a member of the Pennsylvania State Police, and extremely proud of the organization that I was a part of for so long. And and uh, I just saw incredible leadership, not only in that incident, but throughout my career. And again, I just as I got into different leadership positions, I tried to remember that and just emulate it for for the people that were following me. And and I think that's what we do, right? That's what a good leader does: is is try to um, inspire or share with the people behind us so that we can all, um, become better. We want the, we want our organizations to always excel. Yeah. So I'm very, very fortunate.
0: Hey Doug, I, I will throw this out to you. Um, yeah, you, know, you, you hear a lot about gun violence and mental health. Uh, I'm sure uh, mental health issues and mental health treatment. I'm sure this incident has, uh, certainly, um, awaken that that spirit in you about the the value of of mental health for folks to to, and for families to recognize if there's you know these cues that are going on um it just what when you brought up about what you know what he had said to his wife in the suicide letter and and then as as pete said it didn't really make any sense right and then he had three other children after his first you know that individual was clearly suffering from uh, mental health issues right so clearly you know, um what what did anything come from that in in Pennsylvania in terms of like that mental health component to to be much more proactive or is it just it's just one of those things that by its very nature are too difficult
2: I think it is difficult and it's it's unique to each individual and each family, right? So certainly I saw mental health health issues throughout my career and individuals that were suffering from various uh, maladies, you know, commit, commit heinous crimes. Sometimes it was a well-known, you know, um, somebody's not currently taking their medication or following the treatment plan and others, like in this case, Nobody really seemed to know about it. But, you know, what I would encourage people to do is if there's a mental health issue that you have or somebody in your family has, there is help. There's local organizations that can help you get somebody to intervene yeah. uh, and get them the help they need before it accelerates into you know, a really dangerous situation or a broken relationship or when children get abused, you know, that's something we would often see a, a strong correlation between mental health issues and um, particularly abusive children and, and women. So um, and I think in some cases, if there had been intervention, if, if it was known, some incidents could be, could be avoid could be, um, you know, off ramp, they could be prevented, but not all. I would be naive to say that everyone could be detected and how many times have you heard, well, I didn't know this person was capable of that? Yes, they've said some crazy things, but I didn't think they were going to do that. But I think if these incidents are reported, you know, report the mental health issues, whether it's a school, whether it's the workplace, report that and certainly report anything that's suspicious to the police. You know, that piece of information that you give. May help add to a larger puzzle that's uh, of other information you may not be aware of, and then hopefully we can prevent incidents like this from happening in the future.
1: Hey, Doug, the the, the Secret Service uh, had a had a program for a time where they were analyzing and breaking down all these different school shootings. Do you know if they looked at this particular one?
2: I don't believe the Secret Service study did, but we believe that academic research is critically important. And that's how we're going to, by studying this, we can learn if there's, um signs or traits that could be identified to right. stop these before it occur. So we did contribute this case study to both the Center for Disease Control um shooting study and the FBI's behavioral analysis unit. They did a very comprehensive study. Um I believe looking at all shootings from two thousand uh two thousand to two thousand nineteen but uh this was part of um that study. And, and, and
1: did uh, did they did they find anything from this particular case
2: or I think this is one of the few cases and in my study of the literature and, you know, you become a student of this after a while I do Mm. read the studies, there is discernible behaviors that if, identified and reported to the right people could make a difference. That's the vast majority of the cases far and away. There are, however, a small minority of the cases where there was not a lot of overt signs. And in this case, I think this would fit into that category. There Mm -hmm. were not a lot of overt signs, whether family, friends, police, there was no police activity. There was, he had never been arrested, never received a traffic citation. His father was a local police officer for 30 years. Um, so I, d- I think this case, unfortunately, fit into one of those categories. But probably the positive message out of this is there are signs. That people have witnessed things that if reported to the right people, right. the tragedies could be prevented.
1: Right. And I'm sure that um, there's there's other other victims here in terms of family member his family members that
2: are devastated by his actions. Um, Absolutely. they are they are victims as well. Um and they have to live with the aftermath. Right. And again, I I have the utmost respect for how they've conducted themselves and what they've dedicated their lives to doing, particularly, you know, his um his former wife Marie. And and uh yeah, I've had interactions with them. I in fact I coached um his youngest son in baseball for several years. So Oh God. Yeah. Um I, uh... They're still in the community and uh, they're they're just exceptionally good people.
1: I don't know which victimization is worse. I really don't.
2: You know, it's regardless of where you are when you're involved in tragedy like this, it's going to be wide ranging. You know, everybody's going to need help to work through it. It's an individual healing process. You know, what may work for me may not work for you. And we just have to be cognizant of that and and just try to come together as a community, as an organization and uh, and help everybody work through it.
0: Oh. Hey Doug, uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on uh, in the chill at night and illuminating this uh, tragedy. Um, I greatly appreciate it. I know Pete does, and certainly our our viewers will.
2: Well, thank you. Um, thank you very both very much for how you handled the subject and uh, for give me the opportunity to talk about it. And, you know, just one thing before I go, uh, I just like to offer a tribute to Trooper John Smith. He was there with me that day. He showed incredible bravery. He served our country in the military and was decorated for actions overseas. But what nobody overseas could do or no adversary in our country could do cancer took John from us in 2015. So, you know, I think no. about John. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, so yeah. the trooper John Smith, um, I'll, I'll never, I'll never forget his service or his sacrifice. Yeah. Absolutely. So thanks, thanks for letting me say that. Thank <laughs> thanks you, for Doug. having me.
0: Thank you, right. Doug. Thank you. I uh, again, we greatly appreciate you
2: coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. Stay safe.
0: We'll speak to you soon.
2: Thank you, sir. Wow.
1: Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Well, wow. I need a drink. <laughs> God damn. And I don't drink.
0: <laughs> yeah, incredible. Wow. Holy mackerel. True pro. Uh and you can see why. Damn. <laughs> not our typical in the chill no but
1: but, but you know certainly. what the story needed to be told because the big story is the Amish yes wow wow tragedy but i thought i thought it was a bunch of nice quilts and horse drawn carriages and it's much much more
0: much much more um oh. mm. well Hey Pete, thanks. Uh, thanks for another great night. Yeah, and uh, I know who's going to be in my prayers tonight.
1: Oh, absolutely. Okay. All right, my friend. Next uh, one we could yell and scream at, but this one <laughs> wasn't. Uh, this wasn't, but it had to be told. Right, this story has to be shared. Yeah.
0: Unfortunately, there's many more like it too. So, uh, but all right, Pete. Thanks. Have a all, good right. Night. all right. All right. Good too. night.
1: Later.